This is Banished and I am Amna Khaled. Greece, one of the most popular musicals of all time, has somehow, it seems, fallen from grace. Most recently, two schools in Australia were poised to stage a joint production this year, but it was shelved when students complained that the content of the musical was offensive. Among its many crimes are misogyny, anti-feminism, homophobia, rapiness, and slut-shaming. So, if the musical is indeed guilty on these counts, is it time then to hang up our pink ladies' jackets and retire the soundtrack from our playlists? I put the question to Scott Miller, founder and artistic director of New Line Theatre, an alternative musical theatre company in St. Louis. Miller has been directing musicals since 1981 and has written more than a dozen books about musical theatre. I started by asking Miller about the origins of the musical. Well, it was started by a couple of guys in Chicago, and the original production in Chicago wasn't about Danny and Sandy. It wasn't a love story. It was a show about how rock and roll and sex changed America in 1959, mm-hmm. right at the dawn of the sexual revolution. And it's a really interesting, authentic document in that way. A lot of what's in the show really did come from one of the guy's high school experiences. The original show is set on the south side of Chicago, and everybody's got really ethnic names. They're all very working class, you know. And so a couple of producers wanted to take it to Broadway, but they did some rewrites. They cut a bunch of songs and wrote some new songs and added Danny and Sandy at the center. Although I would say still the stage show is not about Danny and Sandy. The stage show is about Mm -hmm. these cultural forces and what they were doing to us and how we were changing because of them. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I feel like it's such a reflection of the culture wars of the time. Of course, it was like made in the 1970s, but it's set in 1958, 59. It's about the kind of music revolution, rock and roll, this kind of sexual liberation of teenagers. And drive-ins. Because of television, drive-ins were now targeting the teenagers. And so that was another place to go have sex. Yeah, it captures both that kind of hidden anxiety of the older generation. It's never really depicted, at least not in the version that I've seen, but it's there in the background. And you can simultaneously see how the young people are rebelling against it. They're negotiating what their roles in society ought to be. So they feel that pressure very clearly. And it's so emblematic of the culture wars of the time. And it's very interesting to me how Greece has become part of the culture wars today now. There were some claims that it was a sexist musical that didn't speak to people, that it showcased bullying in the character of Rizzo, that it was homophobic, that it included slut-shaming, and I'm trying to get, oh, the song was Rapey, where Danny is kind of explaining his summer and his friends are asking him, you know, did she put up a fight? So these are the kind of allegations that are leveled against the show. And I'd like you to kind of talk about how you feel about those. 
Well, you know, particularly in terms of the song Summer Nights, where Dan mm-hmm. telling the story about Sandy and Sandy's telling the story about Danny, and they're really different stories. We know that Danny is lying. We know that Danny is bragging. Which to me is a funny teenager thing. It's not a rapey thing. It's an insecure, doofy teenager thing. As far as I'm concerned, Sandy is the protagonist of Greece. She's the only character that learns and grows in any substantial way. Mm-hmm. She is doing exactly what you're saying. She's negotiating. She's, at the beginning, following the adult world. She's being the good girl like Sandra D was in movies. And she's wearing the poodle skirt that hides her curves. And she's really succumbing to that culture. And the kids at Rydell High kind of shake her. People complain about the show. I think they don't give it enough credit. They're only seeing what's on the surface. And there's a great deal below the surface. The thing that drives me the most crazy is when people say, well, at the end of the show, Sandy has to become a slut in order to win Danny. And that's not at all what happens at the end of the show. (laughs) People just don't give it enough credit. They don't think about it enough. But when Rizzo sings Worst Things I Could Do, There are worse things I could do Than go with a boy or two Even though the neighborhood thinks I'm trashy Every verse is about something that Sandy has done. Been a tease, stayed home and cried, and Rizzo's saying to her, you gotta get over yourself. I could flirt with all the guys Smile at them and bat my eyes Rizzo walks out after the song and immediately Sandy sings the Sandra D. reprise in which she says, Wow, Rizzo's right. I gotta be my mm. person and give up these expectations of the adult world. Look at me. There has to be something more than what they see. Wholesome and pure. Oh, so scared and unsure. A poor man Sandra And so she comes back in her authentic self. And for the first time, a poodle skirt is not hiding her hips. And for the first time, her breasts are obvious and her hair is wild. And she's kind of claiming her body and claiming her sexuality. And in the finale, all choked up, she says to Danny, I know you want me, and that's cool, but we're not going all the way yet. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like she said that to him in the song. And also, you know, that last song, All Choked Up in the show, which is Mm -hmm. so much better than the disco song in the movie. I'm nervous and I'm hot. All Choked Up is, first of all, making fun of the teenagers of the 50s, all the songs about I'm so in love, I'm sick. I'm 
all choked up. Well, there's a fire alarm wailing in my head, and my circulation cries, condition red. I'm in a cold sweat, my t-shirt's all wet. Which with the whole like subgenre, and then Sandy's like, "Yeah, that's cool, but I'm still who I am. So we can be together, but I'm still who I am." At the end of the show, they sing "All Choked Up," and Danny and Sandy are back together again. And then Danny says to Sandy, "I guess you don't want my ring, then." And Sandy goes, "Nah, fuck it," and takes the ring and puts it on. And everybody's happy, and they sing "We Go Together." And to me, that's who Sandy is. And to me, that's also the growth of Sandy—that she's not the meek kid anymore. She really has self-possession now. Yeah, it's a very kind of shallow read of the play to think yeah. that she has conformed to image of a slut to somehow win Danny over. I cannot think of a musical that is more insistent on the need to be who you are and to kind of fight of societal expectations and not conform. It's a strange moment, I feel, right now when we're so obsessed with authenticity, yet we can't stomach a musical, which is all about someone revealing their authentic self. Can I just add to that, though? What's so interesting to me is Sandy comes out in tight pants and a tight blouse, and so she's become a slut just because she's wearing tight clothes for the first time? It just seems so crazy to me that people make that particular leap. You know, her hair is teased, so now she's a slut. Yeah, it's strangely anti-feminist, and I'm bothered by the critiques coming because I'm thinking, for so long, women have actually fought to be able to present themselves the way they want to present themselves. And yet, at this moment, we are coming down harsh on them and judging them in this musical for being who they are. But the other dimension, which I think is fascinating about the musical, is the class dimension. Perhaps the movie doesn't do that good a job of showcasing that. But there is a huge kind of conflict between class values that are going on as well. Yeah, well, in the show, they're all very clearly working class kids. We know at least for some of them, they've got a pretty awful home life. We got that line really early in the dialogue when one of them says, oh, is your old lady dragged her carcass out of bed for you to make lunch, you know, for the first day of school. And it's like, wow. So Mm. doesn't usually get up. (laughs) <laughs> you know, to get you off to school. <laughs> mm. In the movie, they're in Southern California. And they all have silk jackets. <laughs> That's not who these kids are. And I think to some extent, what's kind of interesting is they're the other side of Leave it to Beaver and, and Ozzy and Harry and all that stuff. It's the same period, this other piece of the culture, which to me is really, really interesting. In your work, you talk about, you know, and it's very kind of bold. You talk about the symbol of the guitar and how central it is to rock and roll and to this kind of liberation, which is also visible in the musical. Can you flesh that out for us? In the early 50s, it was the first time that people at home could make their own rock and roll. Earlier in the century, a lot of people had a piano at home. So, you know, you get sheet music Mm. for 
popular song and you'd play it and people would sing along. But once you had the guitar, you could play it anywhere. Hey, hey, duty. <laughs> Where did you get the guitar? You didn't have to be in front of your parents. You could be down in the basement. You could be wherever. You could make your own music. You could express yourself through music. And you could make rock and roll. Lesson four, Magic Changes by Ronnie Dell. Like rock and roll was everything, and you could mm. make rock and roll. And, you know, that song Magic Changes in the show, it's a funny song because it's talking about changes of puberty, but also talking about chord changes. But mm -hmm. that idea that anybody could learn how to play guitar and play rock and roll, that was transformational. That was huge. Why do I start swaying to and fro? I have never heard that song before. But if I don't hear it anymore, it's still familiar to me. Sends a thrill right through me. Cause those chords remind me of the night that I first fell in love to. Those magic changes. My heart arranges. And the other part of it was, Early rock and roll was not about polish. You know, it was punk rock. It was about aggression and wildness and energy. Somebody in their garage could get at that without a great deal of practice. The music I wanna hear is once again you whisper in my Yeah, and there's this idea, you know, that you don't have to follow the traditional musical rules. There's rebellion in every element, I feel, of the musical. Yes. That's what, you know, makes rock and roll so central to the whole thing, because it's so deeply tied in with how people are expressing themselves. What's your favorite song? My favorite song is Mooning. <laughs> Tell us why. I think it's in the background of the movie, but it takes this old-fashioned term, mooning over someone, you know, being attracted, being in love, whatever. And it combines it with the new meaning of mooning, showing your butt. <laughs> wow. And for me, it's such a teenager love song. Such clumsy, funny, goofy images. I just love the music, too. <laughs> I tell you, my other favorite is also not in the movie, which is Alone in a Drive-In Movie. I'm all alone at the drive. which again is sort of a love song, but it's so funny and goofy and teenager. To my mind, the musical showcases all the kind of fumbling you do as a teenager, all the kind of missteps, which are actually necessary to come to discover your true self. Yep. And perhaps discover isn't even the right word, right? To forge the self you want to be. Sandy! Sandy. Oh, Sandy. Oh, Sandy, don't worry about it. Nobody's watching. Danny, get off me! 
Sandy, what's the matter with you? I was watching the film again, which, like I said, I know is a watered-down version of the original. It was so interesting for me as an immigrant to the U.S., watching it now versus when I was a teenager back in Pakistan. And I could understand it so much better because it is reflecting the historical context of the moment. And I wonder to to what degree, you know, it's just sheer historical illiteracy also, which feeds into this notion that we cannot have or we cannot play these characters on stage anymore. I don't know if this is strictly about theater. Maybe it's about all storytelling culture, but it feels like people don't want to look deeply at it. And whatever they see on the surface, they take as a endorsement. Mm. Whatever is happening in the show, they're taking that as the people making this show are telling you this is the right way to live. Well, so what do you do then with Sweeney Todd? (laughs) Just because we're showing something doesn't mean we're endorsing it or recommending it. But I think a lot of people take it that way. And I think that's part of the deal with Greece, that they're saying, oh, you're teaching my young daughter to be a slut to win the man she loves. Like, no, we're not teaching her anything. And that's not what's happening. I think you've hit the nail on the head. You know, this idea that we are unable to articulate anything in any fashion other than endorsement. It means that you are endorsing it. I love it when I'm on Twitter and I'm watching people who kind of make a point of saying retweets are do not equal endorsements. And I have to remind my students when I'm teaching in class, sometimes I'm articulating, you know, as an historian, I'm articulating some very problematic positions held by historical actors. And as I'm articulating them, you know, I find myself reminding them that I am only articulating them so we can analyze them. I'm not promoting them. I'm not condoning them. But there seems to be, and I've talked about this in previous episodes with other people, you know, this growing literal mindedness. In the theater world, how is it playing out? Do you see this happening? I mean, Greece is one musical, but do you see it happening? Have you had pushback with regard to your productions or how you've presented them? Well, <laughs> because of the kind of shows we do, we frequently get people leaving at intermission. <laughs> They've gotten into something they didn't realize they were getting into. I think you have to be prepared for the culture that you consume. For us, you know, we try to do shows that are about things that matter. And sometimes that's ugly. We did a show, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. The premise of the show is that Jackson was essentially an emo teenager, Mm -hmm. outy and moody. And the show portrays him in that way. And all the terrible things he did are in the show. But then people would complain, you know, oh, we're being disrespectful of the president or we weren't condemning enough of what he did to the Indians or, you know, whatever. And it's like, come on, y'all. We're showing you this difficult, complicated thing just for you to think about, just for you to grapple with. So what's the future of art? If this is the moment we're in where our audiences are so unprepared to deal with complexity, as someone who is in the business of producing shows for consumption for this audience, how are you seeing where we're going? I write books, you know, explaining musicals, and I keep a blog chronicling our rehearsal process as we work on a show and talking about what we find out and where we get stuck. I try to bring our audience along with us. I try to help them. In our program, I always have a page of director's notes, and I always try to think, what's the hardest thing to grapple with in this show? What's the most confusing or the most 
morally challenging or whatever. And then I mm. try to talk about that thing in the director's notes. Because, you know, a lot of art is complicated and some art you need some preparation for. You need some help to get it and enjoy it and have fun with it. And that's okay. Kind of big picture, that's what we need to do. And I also feel like it is this transition we're in and we're going to come out of it. And along the line, we just have to help people understand what they're consuming and see the depth of it and see what's wonderful about it. We're figuring out how to deal with this much more varied country and with mm. social media, all these things that are changing in our world so drastically, and they're so scary to some people. And for my part, I have to keep telling stories about important things and get people to think about them. Uh, are you thinking of doing Greece at your theater again? Is it something that you think is relevant? Yes. I think Greece is an amazing show. The last time I worked on it, I went on Amazon and bought 20 collections of 50s rock and roll. And I really found the songs that were clearly the inspirations for the Greece songs. You know, there's a real song called Eddie, My Love. And it has the same chord progression, but a different melody. What's so fun about that was I realized the Grease score is unbelievably authentic. It's oh. really the sound of 5859. And to me, that's wonderful. You know, like aside from all mm. the other stuff, it's this really interesting moment in music history. But I think Greece is always going to be relevant because I have this kind of big picture idea that Greece is about the 50s versus the 60s. Danny and Rizzo and Kinnicky are in the 60s. They've already discovered sexuality and so forth and so on. And so much of our culture is about the 50s versus the 60s. <laughs> That's what hair is about. That's what Rocky Horror is mm. about. But I think we're still in that fight. This show about successfully navigating from the 50s to the 60s, I think that's unsettling for the people who want us to stay in the 50s. <laughs> and I think we keep coming back to this point, you know, cyclically. And so Greece always is there. Well, this car is automatic. It's and for some of us, is like weirdly relevant again. And for some of us, scary as all hell. Why is Greece lightning? Scott Miller, artistic director of New Line Theatre and author of several books about musical theatre. If you enjoyed what you heard today and would like more discussions about cancel culture, censorship, and freedom of inquiry, please consider becoming a member at banish.substack.com. You'll get access to bonus segments, written columns, and special episodes. 
But more importantly, you'll be supporting all the work we do here at Booksmart Studios. Don't forget to rate and share Banished on whichever platform you listen, and do please leave a comment so we know what you think. Our success here at Booksmart depends as much on you as on us. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Wolo, and I, as always, am Amna Khai. Toodaloo!